stand and sing church family. come before you now and we just think about that last phrase we sang lord send forth your word without your word there would not be light there would not be light there would be complete darkness complete hopelessness so lord as we come before you instead of your word today as brother philip comes and shares the sword of the spirit the word of god uh, lord may your word just deeply penetrate and affect our lives like never before and we just ask this in the precious name of jesus amen it's a blessing to begin our service with a lifting our voices to the Lord and also to take part in one of the ordinances that the Lord Jesus gave us, and that was to baptize. And so our first candidate, Jillian Hernandez, 
has been a believer for a long time, but felt uh, the call of obedience to make sure her baptism was on the right side or correct side of her salvation because we do not believe that water baptism saves. We believe it's a testimony and a picture of identification with the Lord Jesus Christ of what's happened on the inside. So, Miss Jillian, upon your profession of faith, trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, it's my privilege to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. For we are buried with Christ through baptism, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. All right, and uh, let me introduce the Brockmeyer family. I say that because we've got three in their family that are going to be baptized, all by profession of faith and coming through baptismal. And our first candidate is Miss Charlie Brockmeyer. Charlie, upon your profession of faith, trusting Jesus as your Lord and Savior, in obedience to the Great Commission, it's my privilege to baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. For we are buried with Christ through baptism, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Right, this is Liam Brockmeyer. Liam, upon your profession of faith, trusting Jesus as your Lord, it's my privilege, my brother, to baptize you in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. For we are buried with Christ through baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Last, we have Billy. Brockmeyer. We couldn't leave the dad out. Right, man? Amen. I love baptizing 30, 40, 50-year-old men. Amen? That, that come to trust Christ. What a huge blessing to see the Lord working in the lives of guys and gals in our church. What a blessing. Billy, upon your profession of faith, trusting Jesus as your Lord, it's my privilege, my brother, to baptize you in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit. For we are buried with Christ through baptism. We are raised to walk in newness of life. Amen, amen. All right. Well, you know, I was joking with the praise team this morning that we wouldn't be singing one particular song about the Bible uh, because the children aren't with us, but because of baptism, you are. So, do you know this one? The B-I-B-L-E, yes, that's the book for me. I stand alone on the Word of God, the B-I-B-L-E. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, kids. <laughs> All right. Hey, remember uh, to fill out one of these blue cards. It's a connection card. And uh, if you're with us maybe for the first or second time, we'd love to know who you are and how we can minister to you. There's some boxes to check if you want to know any information about the church. And then there's also a prayer card there, so you can fill that out. Let me tell you about, um, by the way, has everybody got their Christmas shopping done? No, me neither. But, uh, but I do want to tell you a little bit about Christmas. Back to Bethlehem will happen this year. Going to do it at sort of in a new way. It, one fail swoop. We're going to go uh, Thursday night through Sunday night. Okay, just take up one weekend. 
Okay, And so what's so exciting about this year is just in the last new members class, we've had almost 50 people in the new members class. So over the past you know, 18 months, there's probably 100 to 120 of you that have no idea what I'm talking about when I say back to Bethlehem. And that's exciting because you can be a part of it. And, and we'll give you more information about what that's uh, about. But the main thing is that you just sort of get on your save-the-date calendar, those dates. If you can save that weekend, we would appreciate it. We need everybody involved in the church uh, to pull that off. And you'll be hearing about that more in the months ahead, okay? So thank you for that. Hey, let's uh, continue to sing as we uh, just talk about God's Word, wonderful words of life. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of love. Let me more of their beauty see, wonderful words of life. Words of life and beauty, teach me faith and duty. Wonderful words, wonderful words, wonderful words of beautiful, is precious to you. Let's read John 6, 63 together. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. And these are the words of our Lord. Let's sing together. Holy words long preserved for our
bow with me for our offering today. Lord God, we just come before you now and just pray, Lord, that you would use this time of offering to further your kingdom, that men, women, boys, and girls will hear the message of Jesus Christ uh, because of what's given today, because of the sacrifice, because of the obedience today. Uh, Lord, that everybody in this building will, uh, just through buying of literature and buying of discipleship materials and, and so forth, um, that we will grow in, uh, in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and, 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 Father, be better disciples, better witnesses throughout this world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.
say something about that song before we sing our next. Tommy Walker did such a brilliant job of writing this music because it reminds us musically, we will stop. You've got to stop and think to give him praise. Amen. You can't just go about your day. You have to take time to stop and give him praise and give him thanks. this great, great old hymn this points us to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
Bow with me. Lord God, we just come before you now and we thank you, give you praise. If we've sang songs about your word, but that's certainly not good enough. We have to love your word to the point where it allows our lives to be changed, transformed. Knowledge is good, but transformation is what you're after. So, Lord, I just pray for Brother Philip as he comes and opens the word of God. May we walk away a little bit, conform more into the image of Christ than when we came today because we've heard your word and we've let it penetrate deep into our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. All right, Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Let's honor the Lord through the reading of the word. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. So we arrive Barring the same verb, take the helmet, we take the sword of the Spirit. And the Lord doesn't, Paul, through the inspiration of the, script, uh, of the Spirit, does not allow us to guess what the sword is. Isn't it good that he tells us? Which is the Word of God. As I reflected on this text this week, I thought about how much in profound continuity that Paul is or was with the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you read the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19 through 20, or 18 through 20, what does it remind us of? As you think of the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, what does your mind what do you think about when you think of the Great Commission? When you think about first the preface of the commission. Jesus says, I have all authority. So that fits more with the offensive weapon of the word of God. Why? Because he tells us he has all authority, therefore, yeah. And that one imperative command that's in the Great Commission, make disciples. That's the offensive part of bringing out the sword. However, 
There's also the defensive part of the sword in the Great Commission. Why? As a matter of fact, verse 10 tells us, finally be strong in the Lord. Why can you be strong in the Lord? Because he has all authority. And he's in you, right? What is the defensive part of the Great Commission? He said, once you are saved and you baptize them in the name of Christ, you are to teach them everything that I've commanded you. What does that have to do with? Learning and knowing the word of God. Listen, folks, that's your only defense against the enemy is knowing the word of God. So continuity here because Paul would tell us, be strong in the Lord. Why? He has all authority. But use the word of God as your defense. Why? Because Jesus made it very clear to us. Knowing what God has given you in the word of God. Keep those commandments. Listen to what Christ has already said to us. So, John MacArthur, in his excellent little commentary on the believer's warfare or the armor for the believer, he actually quotes a Scottish preacher named Thomas Guthrie. And here's how Guthrie describes the scripture for us. He describes the scripture as an armory of heavenly weapons, a laboratory of infallible medicines, a mine of exhaustless wealth. He says it's a guidebook for every road, a chart for every sea, a medicine for every malady, a bomb, B-A-L-M, for every wound, a comfort for every grief, And then he says, rob us of the Bible and our sky has lost its sun. Now, I think it's safe to say, including me, that we don't understand the fullness of what it means to have the sword of the Spirit. I want to challenge you today because you have not arrived and I have not arrived. And we so desperately need the Word of God. This book, the Bible, is the inspired, God-breathed, inerrant, infallible Word of the living God. And it is an incredible, matchless, incomparable book that is our final weapon that we're given in this warfare. And it's given to us to do battle against the enemy. We have to know what the Word says. Not just know what it says. We have to use it. Take the sword of the Spirit. I'm encouraging you today to do what Paul is saying. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Again, he's borrowing from the same verb. We take it up. And this piece of armor has echoes in the Old Testament again for us. Are you surprised? And it's in Isaiah 11.4, Isaiah 11.49.2, and Revelation 19.15. Of course, that's the New Testament. I'm going to come to that. I want to return to that in a few moments. But in the New Testament, there are two types of swords mentioned. And it's important to think about that. The Roma... Thaia is a broad sword. That's the Greek word for it. It is a broad sword. And that particular sword is used only seven times in the New Testament. Okay? Luke 2, you remember when they say that the sword to Mary will pierce his side? That's the broad sword. That's the Greek word for broad sword. When he... There is a metaphor, metaphorical use in Revelation 6, 8 that of the violent nature of using the sword. In other words, it's a violent death. It's used five times in the book of Revelation, specifically in reference to Jesus. 
You know, when it says there is a sword proceeding out of his mouth, that's the broad sword. But the second type of sword is a short, double-edged, called the machaira, and that's the Greek word used here. Okay, I have to tell you that because it's important, all right? And that's a short, like a dagger, that is two-edged, and it's used 29 times in the New Testament. Several times, it's just a literal word for sword. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, Jesus said, you come to me with clubs and swords. That's machaira. What does old faithful Peter pull out of his sheath when he whacks off Malchus's ear? Yep, it's the Machaira, short dagger-type double-edged sword. In response to an earthquake in Acts 16, the Philippian jailer takes his sword and is going to fall on it to kill himself. Why? Because he expects all the prisoners are gone. And Paul says, don't do that. We're all here. That's the Machaira, Matthew 10, 34. Jesus said, don't think that I came to bring peace, but I actually came to bring the sword. What does that mean? Well, that's the unpopular side of Christ. Everybody thinks, well, love, yeah, yeah. But this means when I come and you identify with me, it will cause division. Even in your family, when you identify with Christ, that's the word sword. It's going to cause division. In Romans 13, we know that it's in reference to the government being able to use the sword. And that means the government has the right and the power to take life. When it is needed. It's also used in Hebrews 4. Verse 12. Some of you have been after me to preach through Hebrews. And I'm strongly considering staying in two New Testament books in a row. Which is against my better. What I usually do. I usually go to the Old Testament. Maybe we'll preach an Old Testament on Sunday night. But we may do Hebrews. Chapter 4 verse 12. You know this verse. For the word of God is living. And active. Sharper than any two edged sword piercing to the division of the soul and of spirits, of joints, and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There it is, Machaira. Some point out that this sword is only for offensive measures. However, I believe, and a lot of scholars do, and I think biblical warrant would tell us that it's used for both, offensive and defensive purposes. Martin Lloyd-Jones said the sword always serves a dual purpose. It is both defensive and offensive. All right. So just like the other pieces of armor, let's ground it in the Old Testament. Let me show you two texts in the OT that speak of it. One would be Isaiah 11.4. Again, we think that Paul was shackled to a Roman centurion or soldier and he's just looking at that armor. He's like, wow, that works good for a biblical explanation of armor. That's not where he got the idea. He got the idea from the word of God itself in the book of Isaiah, chapter 11, verse 4. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. We're putting connection with Hebrew words into Greek. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Chapter 49 verse 2, the word of the Lord says in 49 verse 2, he made my mouth, this is speaking of the Messiah, he made my mouth like a sharp sword, in the shadow of his hand he hid me, he made me a polished arrow in his quiver, he hid me away. 
And then I mentioned that Revelation 19.15. I'm going to go quickly there. I'm already there. Here it is. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God wrath of God the Almighty, on his robe and on his thigh, his name is written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, when you see the Isaiah and the Revelation passage, what does it bring together? Well, it brings together, and it helps us shape our understanding of the word sword and the, and the mouth and the breath to, be, to consider that it brings both judgment and salvation. What proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord, the Word of God, can bring judgment and it can bring also salvation. And we began to pick up this truth that the Word of the Lord is an agent of salvation. It is also an agent of judgment. As a matter of fact, God's judgment upon his enemies often ends up being the salvation of his people. So Paul says, take up the Machaira of the Spirit. What an awesome picture. When he says sword of the spirit, what does he mean? Well, he can mean several things, but let me narrow it down to two. All right? First, the sword of the spirit, meaning the spirit is the source of the word. All right? Take up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, meaning the spirit is the source. It is the spirit who is the origin, the authority of the sword. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is inspired by God. That is the word. I don't have to tell you the Greek word. <laughs> that and 25 cents for your understanding may buy you a cup of coffee at McDonald's. For some of you that study the Greek, you do want to know what that is. It's theonoustos, but I don't have to say that. It means God breathed it. God divinely inspired and breathed it. So all scripture is given by, given by God's breath. Right? All scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly furnished and equipped for every good work. So, the word of God is the breath of God. It comes by and from the spirit of God. The sword of the spirit is the sword which comes from the spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is the author of the word of God. Now stop for a moment and think about that. Are y'all listening? This has huge relevancy and importance in our day when everybody's claiming all kind of garbage and utterances. This has huge significance for you. So listen up, all right, when it comes to the word of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is the author of the word of God. Hear me, folks. To assert that the Bible is the breath of God, the words of God that come from the Spirit of God, is to say that the Spirit is not only the origin and author of the Scripture, but it's more comprehensive than that. The moment you say that the Bible is the inspired word of God and that these words came by the Holy Spirit moving upon men to write the scriptures, 1 Peter 1.21, it is to say that the Spirit being the author also ties all the scripture together. Not just that he's the author, but it brings the totality of the word of God together. To say that we believe in the inspired, inerrant, infallible, authoritative word that comes from God through his spirit, is to say something about the way we view reality, the way we perceive truth. Check this out. Actually, the way that we understand truth is tied to this, is to say something about who God is and how God acts. The Holy Spirit 
being the author of the scripture, listen, is the comprehensive core to the understanding of Christian theology. If you don't believe that God wrote the Bible and that we have the totality of the written word of God, then you're going to get in trouble. You're going to go off. You're going to become a flake. You're going to think about experience more than you do about the word. You're going to think, if I feel this or do this, then it trumps the word of God. No, it doesn't. You cannot separate the word from the spirit and vice versa. So... It is to say something about the God who has spoken and the God who acts. The Holy Spirit is the author of the Scripture. Paul is not only saying that the Spirit is the source of the sword, but the Spirit is also the owner of the sword. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the Spirit's sword. It belongs to the Spirit. Who is the effective power behind the Spirit's work? It is the Spirit of God that is behind the work. Ultimately, these are His words. And therefore, He's the effective work. In other words, it's not the swordsman. Maybe you look at me and you say, the preacher's got the sword out up there. All right? Well, you can do that all day long. But unless the Spirit of God works, nothing will happen. And it's together with the preaching, the teaching. It is together with the Word. But ultimately, these words are therefore His words. And they're effective. Giving power that comes behind the Word of God whenever the people of God use the Word of God. We can say those things, but it's the Spirit of God who's working. As Messiah, God's Messianic King, comes to us when we are dead in trespasses and sins. I've tried every way I could possibly do to make necros not mean dead, but it means dead. And I know there's a lot of movement around this world in theology saying, well, dead is not really dead. The Bible says you're dead in trespasses and sins. You don't have the spirit and you don't have life. That's what that means. You're spiritless. So the Messiah, the King, comes to you when you're dead in sins. And in that condition, the sword of the Spirit comes to us through God's Messiah. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and they come to me. So then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. And the Word of God comes to us through the power of the Spirit, energizes us, and brings us life. Peter says, you have been born again not by perishable seed, but by imperishable, which is the living and abiding Word of God. Folks, do you see that you're made alive by the Spirit and the Word? That can't mean any other thing. You've been born again, made alive by the imperishable seed, which is the living and abiding Word of God. He uses the Word to bring life. How does the Spirit of God use the Word? He, brings, he uses the Word to bring us life. He uses that sharp two-edged sword like a scalpel that starts to dig underneath the surface. And it starts to open us up so that the heart of stone can be taken out and the heart of flesh can be put in. James says this, by his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. Can you get any clearer? By his own word, by his own will, actually, he brought us forth by the word. So the sword which belongs to the Spirit, is effectively used in bringing us 
life. It's effectively used in opening our eyes, changing our hearts, and bringing us into the kingdom of light. When people are in darkness, they're under the death pull of their own sin, and all they know is darkness. The Spirit of God takes the Word of God, begins to penetrate, and you're conflicted in a way that you've never been conflicted before. They're conflicted because all they've ever known is darkness. Now all of a sudden the sword of the Spirit is making cuts. It's making incisions and it's bringing light. The blessed, blessed be the God of our Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, that at a particular time that belongs only to Him, then He opens the heart, opens the mind, opens the souls, and He liberates you from the bondage of your sin and He brings you into a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Is that not a great use of the sword of the Spirit? It's given over and over and over in the Word of God. There are some of you who need that kind of open heart surgery. And perhaps as you're hearing the Word preached, the Spirit of God is taking His Word and He's discerning the thoughts and He's cutting and He's dividing, right? Hebrews 4, 12. He's opening you up to the person and work of Christ. He's letting you see your need for repentance because you see the legal demands of the law that you could never meet it, but Christ met them for you. And so... Maybe you're here today and you say, I want to be made new. And that will only happen through the Word of God and His Spirit. It will only happen through the Word of God and His Spirit. What happens after He brings us to life? Do you stay on the gurney? Some of you Baptists act like you do. I mean, you've been given life and you act like you're still dead. But you don't stay on the gurney. Then the Spirit of God says you take up the sword of the Spirit in your hand. You take it up. And you don't let go of the sword. You hang on to the sword because the same sword of the Spirit that brought you life is the same Spirit, the same sword that will maintain your life, sustain you and protect you. And in particular, in this particular warfare that we are in. Take up the sword of the Spirit. The second part, phrase, is which is the Word of God. Does anybody know what the common, most common word used in the New Testament for the word, word? Do y'all know? Shout it out. In the beginning was the logos. Now, David said it correctly in Greek. It is logos. Now, the computer program you call logos that's in English because la is an omicron, it's an O, it's not an omega. If it were an omega, we would say logos. It's not, it's an omicron O. Logos, with the short O, is how you actually say it in the Greek. So it is the term logos. 330 times in the New Testament the word logos is used. It has a massive range of meaning. It can be content of any communication. It can be an act of speaking in general. It can be synonymous with the gospel. It can, as in 1 Corinthians 1.18. It can refer to a treatise or a book or an account of certain events. It can be a record of financial accounts. Kind of like as you read your bank statement. That if it's like mine, it is shrinking rapidly. Right? In this world that we live in. It can be reason. Uh, here it is. Peter says, always be ready to give a reason for the hope that that's the word logos. It is used at that particular time. It can, be, it can mean a matter, a thing, or an event. 
most importantly, can also be a title for Christ the Lord. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Guess what? That's not the word that's used. The word used here is the word rhema. And it's only used 68 times in the word of God. It can mean a minimal unit of discourse. It can mean, uh, it can actually refer to, a, refer to a single word. It can. It can be centered on that which has been stated or said, much like logos. The focus can be on the content of the communication, which is also like logos. Now here's the question. Is there a difference between logos and the word rhema? Some say logos refers to the substance, and others say that rhema refers to the utterance. Does, however, an utterance have substance? And does a substance have utterance or need to be uttered? I would say yes. Others see no difference at all. There, there are passages where rhema and logos are used interchangeably. However, we know that if rhema was logos and logos was rhema, you'd only have one word. So the fact of the matter is, two words linguistically cannot mean exactly the same thing. They cannot be totally synonymous. So how are these two terms to be figured out? Well, if you go back to the Old Testament translation from Hebrew to Greek called the... I told you this. Septuagint, right? The Hebrew Bible was translated into the Greek so people could understand in Greek what the Bible actually said in the Old Testament. If you look at that, here's something interesting. In the historical books, in the Old Testament, Lagos is the predominant reading for what's written down. In the prophets, Rhema is the predominant meaning. In the historical books, the emphasis on the writ is on the written, but in the prophets, it's on the spoken word. For instance, how many times does it say the word of the Lord came to the prophet saying? Okay, Rhema would be that particular understanding. So, I'm not any clearer on that, are you? Between Rhema and Lagos of how and why the author Paul would use it and not Lagos. Well, how does Paul use the term? Well, Paul will only use rhema eight times. Two times, uh, it is somewhat irrelevant because he's talking about the rhema of his own speech. He uses it in 2 Corinthians 13.1 as a matter, M-A-T-T-E-R. I told you it could have a range of meaning. He's, that's talking about two witnesses against someone on a given matter. It's used there. But let me show you the predominant time he uses it. And maybe we can understand a little clearer what's going on. Romans 10. I'm coming to something, y'all, okay? I will get there. And if you don't like this little grammar lesson, I'm sorry. But I really feel like what excites me ought to excite you. All right? But it is really for your benefit when we get down to the end of this. So he's going to use it several times here. Eight other times total in the Bible. But in, in Romans 10, he uses it many times. Look what it says in verse 8. Chapter 10, verse 8. The word, but what does he say? The word is near you. The rhema is near you in your, check this out, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. If you move your eyes down to verse 17, here we go again. So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the rhema of Christ. And then, so one is 
in verse 8, it is in your mouth, in your heart, word of faith, which we are preaching. Down in verse 17, here's the word rhema of Christ. So faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Verse 18, but I ask you, have not, heard, have not all heard? Indeed they have. The voice has gone out to all the earth and their words. Ramata. There it is again. To the ends of the world. If you go over to Ephesians chapter 5 verse 24. Listen to the usage there. No, I'm sorry. It's verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Verse 26. That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word. Not Lagos, Rhema. And the other usage is right here in 17. Chapter 6, verse 17. And the sword of the Spirit, which is the word, Rhema of God. I think it's safe to say that in general, Rhema is any divine utterance, whether it comes to the prophet, to, to the apostle, or to the messenger, or whether it comes through or from the prophet, apostle, or messenger. The, this is true spoken or written. It is understood to be divine special revelation in that sense that is synonymous with logos. So when you think of logos and rhema, see them in a circle that overlaps 90% of the time. That's the best way to see it. With that said, Paul's use of rhema seems to emphasize the word of God as either spoken or somehow used. Oh, now we're getting to something. It cannot be reduced to just spoken because it is in the word that is both in your mouth and in your heart. Are y'all listening? So Paul emphasis on the word in the mouth and the heart and the mind means you got to use it. You got to use the word. So the God-breathed scripture, the word of God, as it is used, as it is spoken, as it is hidden in the heart... As it is specifically applied in us is what Paul has in mind with the term rhema. Here's another way to see it. The rhema is not only to see it on the page, but as the word of God is in the heart, in the mouth, in the mind, in the hand, in the action of life. Make no mistake about it. The word that is on the page needs to be the same word that's up here and in here and in here. They can't be different. But... It can't remain just on the page. Y'all getting this? Baptists are notorious for saying, well, I know the Word of God, but you never take it off your lampstand. You never, you never pick it up. You don't read it. You don't hide it in your heart that you may not sin against the Lord. So when the Word of God on the pages becomes the Word of God in the heart and in the head and in the mouth as we apply it, then it is the rhema of the Spirit of God. According to Romans 10, 8, when the Word is in your heart, when the Word is in your mouth, when the Word is preached, it is the rhema of God. And in Romans 10, don't miss this, it's connected directly to the Word of Christ, Ramata of Christ, which is the Gospel. It's the Gospel. It's more than the Gospel, but it certainly contains the Gospel. You notice I read that about washing your wife with the water of the Word. Some of you husbands got real nervous. Because you're like, what in the world does that mean? And have I been doing it? Well, think about the rhema of God. What is spoken? How does it work to wash your wife with the water of the word? Let me tell you a way it doesn't work too well. 
Honey, I've noticed you've been a little ungodly today. <laughs> and so, open wide. I'm about to hit you right in the mouth with the water of the word, a faucet. <laughs> right? No, that's not what they're saying. It's, it's not only as it is on the page. It's as a husband speaks to his wife for sanctifying purposes. In other words, you start to call you men something. Guys, you got to step up. You, if you're going to wash your wife with the water of the word, you got to know the word. Quit being a pansy. You got to know the word. It's impossible. Let me ask you, some of you wives, if, would you rather be married to a guy that's got 7,000 Bible verses in his mind that never says a single one to you? Or he knows seven, but he consistently and lovingly gives these words to you so that he can encourage and strengthen you. If it just stays on the page, guys, you're missing it. If you're just coming here on Sunday morning thinking, oh, I'm doing great because the pastor preached and I read a verse. No, that's not enough. F.F. Bruce says, the divine utterance, which is the product of the Spirit, lends itself readily to the believer who has laid it in his heart for effective use against a moment of danger. How are you going to use it, folks, if you don't have it on your heart and in your mind in the moment of danger against any attempt to seduce him from his allegiance from Christ. And listen to me, young and old alike, the enemy wants to cause you to debunk and leave your allegiance to Jesus. And if you don't have the word of God in your heart, in your mouth, in your mind, Joshua knew this, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate in it day and night, that you may observe to do all that is written therein, then you shall make your way prosperous and have good success. It's got to be in your mind, it's got to be in your manner, it's got to be in your mouth. You got to meditate on it. Listen again to Martin Lloyd Jones. Paul means our ability to select and to use the appropriate word or passage at any given point. Now, let me give a word of caution. We're not talking about some kind of magically speaking a word that you think you got from God that's going to help somebody be healed. That's not what we're talking about. Understand something, folks. You can't separate the Word and the Spirit. And I'm telling you, you better be careful. Word of caution. They take the word rhema to mean that God utters new things to them. And they're able to take that. Like you need to be healed from your hemorrhoids or whatever that might be. Literally, this was said. I'm telling you, folks, that is heretical. And here I stand on the authority of the Word of God. You better check it with the Bible. Test the spirits. Not all people say that comes from Christ does. Make sure you mesh it with what the Bible says. So, Gordon Fee, who is an excellent scholar, and he happens to be pretty much the only one that is a Pentecostal. He belongs to the Assembly of God. Here's what he writes. Paul simply would not have understood this fascination with quote words that one finds among some, some contemporary charismatics as though what we speak against the devil is what will defeat him. Paul's aim is higher than that. God has something to say to be sure, but it is not some ad hoc word directed at Satan. Such an understanding surely endows Satan with far more authority in this present world than this text actually allows. Rather, as verses 18 through 20 confirm, which is on prayer, 
the word of God, that is the Spirit's sword, is the faithful speaking forth of the gospel in the arena of darkness so that men and women might hear and be delivered from Satan's grasp. Paul has in mind the word as it is in our hearts, the word as it is in our minds, the word as it is in our mouths, and as we use it in the fight ourselves or in helping others, offensively or defensively. So as we conclude this morning, notice two things. The Word and the Spirit stay together. Please hear me. There's not a separation between the Word and the Spirit. The Word is always the sword of the Spirit, and the sword of the Spirit is always the Word. We must deeply and fundamentally be committed to that realization. It's not as if a Christian is called by God to make a choice. Well, I'm going to be a Word kind of Christian, or I'm going to be a Spirit kind of Christian. Bogus. It's not as if God says, well, I'm going to be a book Christian. He says, you can be a book Christian or you can be a spirit Christian. The Bible nowhere gives us that room in any shape or form to separate the word of the living God, which we have from Genesis to Revelation, and the spirit of God. As long as the sword of the spirit is the word of God, the spirit of God is committed to working in and by and through his word and only by and through and in the word. Period. Not your existential experience. Does the word affect that? You better believe it. But not other new divine revelation you think you're getting directly from God. This is the complete word of God. Given to us. So, as long as the word of the Spirit is the word of God, right? So, in other words, you cannot have the Spirit without the word any more than you cannot have the word without the Spirit. We saw a wedding yesterday, right, Jeffrey? And what you say at a wedding is what God has joined together, let no man separate. So, without doing, doing abuse to that marital, marital union statement, let us not ever divide the word and the Spirit. What God has joined together, let no man separate separate. So, second, if you take seriously the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, then we must learn to use the sword of the Spirit. They're connected. You can't separate them. Listen, this is application. We must learn to use the sword of the Spirit. We need to use it. We've got to have it in our hand, in our heart, in our head, and in our mouth. It must have its work in your life through the power of the Spirit. How many times have you been in a situation where you knew full well all it would have taken is to recite to your heart and mind the truth of God's word. You needed it in that moment. And you think, oh, I wish I knew that verse. I wish I would have had it. There is this principle in the spiritual world. If the only place the sword of the spirit stays is on your desk, or your nightstand is worthless to you when the devil comes against you with fiery darts. We must have the word of God in us and with us. We must learn it. We must hide it in our hearts. We must put it into our heads. We need to be like a trip hammer when it comes to the word of God. Always ready. Always bringing up the scripture. Thy word have I hidden. That means stored. That means treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. One of my favorite Verses in the Bible is 1 John 2, 14b. It's the second part of the verse. Here's what he says. Are y'all listening? He says, I write to you young men because you are strong. 
and the word of God abides in you. Mm. And you have overcome the evil one. Does that not put all this together for us? I know you're strong. Why? Because the word of God abides in you and you're able to overcome the evil one. The word of God is the only thing that can effectively equip you against the schemes and the assaults and the strategies to the enemy of your soul. The word of God must be in your mouth. Paul says in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love. Husbands are to wash their wives with the water of the word in the midst of a culture of lies. We live in the midst of a culture of lies. You need to wash your wife with the water of the word. Here's another great verse. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught. That's a disciple. Y'all listening? The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Don't we need each other in the church? If you don't have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word in your mind, you're not going to protect, you're, you're of no protection. You're not going to get protected. Neither are you giving anything out to anyone by the spoken word, spoken word of God that's going to help them. Again, we need to consistently know the word of God and memorize it. We need to know the word. We need to have verses of scripture that we use. Just think about it. You can be so chalk full of the Bible that your neck cannot hold up your cranium. But God's word must work in us. If you're in Christ, I've got news for you. It is. If you're in Christ and you're saved today, the work of the word is in you. If you're in Christ, it is the operative word by the power of the spirit that accomplishes work in your life to those who believe. Learn the word, folks, and use it in the battle both offensively and defensively. Take up the sword of the Spirit and use it against the enemy. Use the word to build up faith. Use the word to abide in the word so you'll be strong, as it says in 1 John. We cannot afford to be complacent at this point. You get into a lot of trouble when you think you know it all and you can just say, I'm good. Uh, there's no temptation that is coming against me. Galatians 6.1 would tell you don't do that. That'll be a huge mistake. Arthur Pink reminds us, and I end with this, God suffers it to appear that the best of men are but men at best. No matter how richly gifted they may be, how eminent in God's service, how greatly honored and used of him, let his sustaining power be withdrawn from them for a moment, and it will quickly be seen that they are nothing but earthen vessels. No man stands any longer than he's supported by divine grace. The most experienced saint, if left to himself, is immediately seen to be as weak as water and as timid as a mouse. Mercifully, folks, I moved off his quote. Mercifully, listen to this, God does not leave us to ourselves. Do you see this in the armor? He's provided you with truth to be girded around at the midsection of the core of your strength. He's given you faith. He's given you his very imputed righteousness. He's given you the helmet of salvation and the word of God so that you may not only endure, but stand firm in every trial and every temptation and every assault of the enemy. When it's all said and done, folks, the only way we're ever sustained is the grace of God. He's been merciful to us. And the person who truly knows that sees complacency as a grave danger. I remind you, church family, I remind you men, 
I remind you ladies, we cannot be complacent in this area. We cannot think we've arrived. It's only the Lord who keeps us standing. And I love Martin Luther's A Mighty Fortress. I always remember this. With one simple word, our God will fail him. He's the one who does it, right? Oh, all right. Next week, we're going to talk about prayer. And believe it or not, probably after that sermon, I'm going to wrap it up with 20 through 24. Can you believe that? And we'll try to finish the book of Ephesians. What a blessing it has been to my own life. And then you pray for me that I will uh, figure out which direction we're going in next. I promise you this, we'll preach the Bible. All right? Let's pray. Father, help us. Lord, I, I just feel impressed to speak to you on behalf of our men and ask you, Father, to raise them up. Lord, we, we voted to have elders and deacons leading our church, and we need to be men of the word. God, help us. Lord, we're, we're often selfish. We are self-centered, and we forget how important it is for us to weld that sword offensively and defensively. As dads and as fathers and as husbands, Lord, um, we so often just fall apart with any trial or temptation or any difficult. God, help us to run to you with the word of God. It's our source. Your word reminds us to desire the pure milk of the word of God that in it you may grow. There's no growth apart from the word. We're reminded that it is a lamp to our feet and a light unto our path. There's no removing of the darkness in the path. There's no guidance in the future without the light of the word. God help us. God help us to remember that if we've been made alive by that word and we're saved, we don't put down the sword. We actually take it up for offensive measures and taking the gospel to the ends of the earth and for defensive measures of knowing what your word says, applying it to life so that we'll be able to stand against the wiles of the enemy. God, help us. Help us to be a word-saturated church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Brother David is going to lead us in a hymn of invitation. And you respond. Maybe it's a, men, it's a, ladies, it's a commitment. Maybe you don't have to walk an, an aisle. I get it. The altar can be right where you are, right? But here's the deal. Maybe it's a recommitment uh, to being a man or woman of the word, right? Knowing and applying it to life. If you don't know the Lord, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word. Perhaps the Spirit of God with the word of God has opened your heart and mind to understanding of the gospel. and You desire to repent and believe in Jesus only. Paul says, I, get, I declare to you of first importance that Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures. He was buried and that he rose again, right? Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Brother David, let's sing together. Oh, soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see. There's light for a look at the Savior and light the
Brother David. Well, we don't, on fourth and fifth Sunday nights, we don't have services, but I pray that you will spend time with your family. I hope you have a wonderful day. Uh, we will be back uh, Wednesday night for our normal activities and hope you'll make, a part of, make that a part of your life as well. All right? God bless you. Brother David? God bless you. <laughs> Amen.